We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. This week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps, and I'm joined this evening by Ross Feingold in Taipei. Good evening. And by Michael Smith in Kaohsiung. Good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing KMT Vice Chairman Andrew Shah touting the success of his just-concluded China trip, lawmakers passing a special bill for post-coronavirus pandemic economic recovery, and a food delivery autonomous mobile robot being set to begin trials at the Kaohsiung Software Park. But we'll begin with representatives from Taiwan and the United States holding the annual security dialogue this week at the American Institute in Taiwan's Washington, D.C. headquarters quarters. The meeting was attended by senior officials from both sides. Taiwan's delegation was led by Foreign Minister Joseph Wu and National Security Council Secretary General Wellington Gu, and they were accompanied at the event by Taiwan's top envoy to the United States, Xiaobi Kim. While the US delegation included Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman, Principal Deputy National Security Advisor John Finer, and Eli Ratner, the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Indo-Pacific Security Affairs there. Now, the closed-door meeting lasted for some seven Seven hours. Neither side, though, disclosed the focus of the talks, but local defence officials here, our analysts rather, say that the event being made public before it was held this year was a significant move. And of course, as Ross will play to say later, it also gave Joseph Wu some photo opportunities. Now, politicians here have also been pontificating about the meeting, with local media citing independent lawmaker Freddie Lin as saying the meeting sent a clear message to the international community that exchanges between Taiwan and and the United States are becoming normal and open, while KMT lawmaker Johnny Jung speculated that the two sides might have discussed how to preempt disruptions in cross-strait relations should President Tsai Ing-wen visit the United States or US House Speaker Kevin McCarthy visit Taiwan. Now, prior to that meeting in Washington, D.C., US Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for China Michael Chase popped into Taiwan for a visit. The government, though, was rather non-committal as to whether Chase was in Taiwan or not, with Defence Minister Cho Guo-jung saying that it was not very certain about the plan only hours prior to Chase's arrival, which was confirmed by the Financial Times, which once again appeared to have some inside information that nobody else did. Now, the Financial Times reported that the Pentagon declined to comment on the visit, but cited it as saying that the US support for and defence relationship with Taiwan remains aligned against the current threat posed by China. And on Thursday of this week, Presidential Office spokeswoman Kalashia Taka publicly acknowledged that US Representative Mike Gallagher visited Taiwan last week to hold talks with President Tsai Ing-wen and Vice President William Lai. Now, according to the Presidential Office spokeswoman, um, Tsai and Lai met with a Wisconsin Republican who chairs the new House Select Committee on China separately during a visit to Taipei, which took place from February the 17th through the 20th, during which they thanked him for supporting, well, Taiwan. Now, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs said that Gallagher also met with Foreign Minister Joseph Wu and local business leaders while he was here. Now, the statements come after Gallagher disclosed details of the previously unannounced and hush-hush trip in an interview published by the Washington Post. Now, Gallagher told the Post that Taiwan is concerned about delays in the delivery of weapons systems by Washington and that he kept news of his hush-hush visit to Taiwan secret due to China's response to Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan last August. So, a lot of meetings there that we don't really know much about. Well, we do now, but we don't... If you see what I mean, Ross... Yeah, it's like like when you're you're a child and somebody says they want to be your friend, but uh, don't tell anyone else. They want to be your your secret friend. Uh, it's probably 
our kind of friendship, Gavin, if, if we had known each other 40 years ago, uh, you know, I wouldn't want too many people to know about it. Uh, I, I, I don't think all this secrecy is really necessary. And then there's a flip side of that, which is uh, we, we shouldn't make a big deal about what really is already routine meetings. And, and any of these meetings, frankly, are, are already fairly routine. So whether it's U.S. Uh, security officials for, from across uh, the, the military establishment, whether it's civilian or in some cases we, we know, because it's in the news that uniformed, very, very senior military officers do visit uh, Taiwan, uh, or the meetings that took place not in Washington, D.C. So there, you know, there, there's some media here that calls it a big breakthrough because the meeting at AIT headquarters was inside the Beltway, uh, but it was still in Arlington, Virginia, which is where AIT Washington headquarters is located. Uh, and people make a big deal out of that, which I think is, is unnecessary. So uh, at some level, uh, legislator uh, Freddie Lim is correct. Uh, it's just a normalization of ongoing dialogue across a range of issues. So that, that's a good thing. Uh, again, I, I don't think all this secrecy uh, is, is really necessary. I mean, sometimes it's done to add a bit of drama. I mean, for example, Representative Gallagher, uh, you know, I don't understand what, what, what the reference point to, to the Pelosi visit is because he, he's not the speaker and so many U.S. Uh, representatives and senators as well as parliamentarians from other countries uh, visit, the, the, visit China, uh, sorry, visit Taiwan. Uh, so I, I don't think China was going to get, get into a large military exercise simply because Representative Gallagher visited, and uh, you know, once it come, became public, of course, they're going to criticize it anyway. So he might as well have been met, met at the airport with with all the uh, you know attention for the Taiwan government and, and media. But uh, you know, we could talk a lot about these back and forth visits, but uh, you know, ultimately, what matters is the substantive outcome. So one issue you mentioned was the delay in, in, in delivery of, of uh, arms that, that Taiwan is committed to buy. I, I think Taiwan justifiably could be upset about that, just like anyone who buys something and expects quick delivery or delivery within the contract and doesn't you know, get, could get grouchy about a delay. I, I, I think Taiwan justifiably could feel that way regardless of, of the overall environment uh, between uh, China and Taiwan. Uh, and then, you know, other issues that might come out of this through these talks, you know, there, there's the, the 21st century trade talks are going on. Uh, will there be other visits by Biden administration officials? Because they you know, they haven't really uh, matched the level of the, of the Trump administration, especially in the final months of the Trump administration, uh, when a cabinet secretary came here. Uh, so, you know, we, we have to await the substance uh, out of all this back and forth meetings. And of course, Joe Zifu Ross um, had the nice photograph. Well, as I said, uh, some media called this a big breakthrough because uh, he was photographed entering AIT headquarters and, and media, uh, which wanted to label this a breakthrough, uh, based that on the fact that AIT headquarters is inside the Beltway. You know, this term for, refers to a highway that encircles Washington, D.C. So if you're inside the Beltway, you're, you're, you're informally considered in within Washington, D.C. And as I'm sure many of the listeners know, there, there's been these kinds of restrictions on certain Taiwan government officials, the president, the vice president, the foreign minister, uh, a few others, uh, being publicly 
publicly seen in Washington, D.C. Now, the National uh, Security Council Secretary General, who, was, who accompanied Joseph Wu on the trip, uh, the person who holds that job has been seen in Washington, D.C. before, reportedly. Uh, the predecessor, David Lee, met with John Bolton a few years ago in Washington, D.C. Uh, so, again, you know, do, do we want to focus on uh, you know, how, how many kilometers within downtown D.C.? He, he was, or actually just focus on substantive stuff. Yeah, so I agree with uh, Ross that it's uh, it's uh, hard to know sometimes which the better path to take is. So when they refuse to comment, it does make things kind of simple, and um, you, you just, you know, many other countries around the world that have sensitive military issues are very good at just saying no comment, and uh, I'm thinking of Israel in particular. But then also, you do want the rest of the world to know that the U.S. has support for Taiwan and that there is people doing so. Yeah, it, it does get complicated. Um, I don't know how much Taiwanese people are paying attention to this, despite perhaps it being broken in the media and the media f- uh, featuring it. There was a large news organization in the States that I write for occasionally, and they were contacting me about this. Like, get the, get the men on the streets view of this. And I was like, I don't know what to tell you, but, you know, uh, I don't think anybody is really paying attention to it. Defense analysts and all those people, that's good. But um, I also think that Ross is correct in uh, thinking about the result as the most important thing. So when uh, Representative Gallagher went back to the States, he was here from, what, 17 to the 20th? And then just yesterday, so he's only been back a couple days, and he's already on the House floor talking about these weapons, uh, I believe, yesterday. So that's, that's progress. That's good. And that's, that's what we should be judging these things on. And I think you can't get around the fact that, uh, you know, this past year has been a year of comparisons uh, between Taiwan and Ukraine. And the Ukraine thing has just uh, made much of the world much more uh, aware of the situation here. You see evidence of that, of uh, the troops, of U.S. troops that are planning on coming here to train. They say perhaps 100 or 200, and then we're planning on sending a battalion to the U.S. for training in the second half of the year. So um, it is fair, the people who are saying that, you know, some progress is being made, normalization is being made, but uh, it's also not uh, the most groundbreaking thing that's ever happened. And in some groundbreaking news this week, in the same vein, apparently the Ministry of Foreign Affairs shot down claims by former KMT lawmaker Alex Tsai after he said that apparently, Ross, apparently Joe Biden and the White House have plans for Taiwan's destruction. Well, it's, it's interesting how this whole situation uh, played out domestically here in Taiwan. Uh, uh, former legislator Alex Tsai was merely referring to a tweet that a journalist uh, in, in Washington, D.C. sent out, where there's journalist uh, named Garland Nixon. So it's kind of funny, right? There's always people named Nixon who seem to be, have, it, have it in for Taiwan. First, Richard <laughs> Nixon went to Beijing. And then we have this journalist named Garland Nixon who sent out a tweet uh, alleging that he spoke with uh, official in, in the Biden administration who said, uh, we, we have a plan for the destruction of Taiwan. Uh, my own view is uh, we'll, we'll give uh, Mr. Nixon, the benefit of the doubt that he really did speak to an official in the Biden administration who did say something to this effect, uh, by, by guess is he was probably referring to what the United States would do in the aftermath of hostilities breaking out between China and Taiwan, uh, along the lines of what we see with, with Ukraine. So uh, the destruction probably meant the attempted invasion or the successful invasion or the, the part, partly ongoing invasion with, with, with fighting going on 
uh, in the Strait or in uh, on Taiwan itself, and how the U.S. and Western governments would react, whether that's intervention uh, with their own militaries, sending military aid, uh, draconian sanctions imposed on China. Again, very similar to what we see with Ukraine. So I, I, I think that's what the official was probably referring to. Uh, but, but the Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, issued a statement focusing on what what uh, Alex Tai said, uh, when they probably should have just focused on what the journalist said, in my opinion. Uh, but I also think this is a, a bit of a misunderstanding, and the, the Biden administration official, assuming that there really was one, uh, could have spoken more clearly. And I think the tweet from uh, Garland Nixon also probably could have been more clear. But it started to cause people, uh, partly based on what Mr. Tsai said on, on, on in the media as well, uh, to think that the U.S. really had a plan to destroy Taiwan. Uh, and I, I don't think that's very likely, keeping in mind uh, U.S.-Taiwan relations are rock solid, as people like to say. Uh, so I don't think there's a plan for the U.S. to destroy Taiwan. I hope not. I don't believe there is. That's why I'm still here. I'm not leaving. Uh, uh, so uh, as with so many things with, with U.S.-Taiwan relations, you know, things get blown out of proportion, which is unfortunate. But it does, uh, uh, it does have a relationship with another interesting issue, which is as soon as someone uh, expresses some kind of concern about the U.S. ability to assist Taiwan, there, there's a lot of people online, and I've been on the receiving end of this myself recently, uh, who will accuse you of, of spreading misinformation or, or you're doubting the U.S. commitment to Taiwan. I think it's safe to say that the U.S. does have plans to intervene militarily uh, in the event of hostilities. Uh, so ultimately, it's always up to the president uh, at the time whether or not the United States will actually do that. But the United States has plans for that. United States military prepares for that, it's just, especially its forces in, in, in this part of the world, uh, whether that's Navy, Marines, uh, or in Japan or other U.S. assets. Uh, but uh, again, there's this trend where somebody says, uh, well, you know, the U.S. Navy is really lagging in, in building ships or in, in ship maintenance, and it's going to be a big issue if there's a war. Or somebody says, wow, you see what happened with Afghanistan. The U.S. government was kind of slow. Its judgment was was incorrect about the Afghanistan military and then its ability to to uh, evacuate uh, people that, that that took a while to get to get going even though ultimately within a short period of time they did evacuate a large number of people uh, but again even expressing you know, very reasonable concerns in the course of discussing international relations or military issues, uh, there's a trend of being attacked uh, and I think that's part of election campaigning as well, that uh, one side will say, oh, you doubt, you doubt the United States, you're pro-China. Uh, I don't think that's very healthy. Ross, but, I mean, I, I hear where you're coming from, but don't you think Alex Tai should know better? I mean, the, the phrase, America has a plan for the destruction of Taiwan, is just ludicrous. And well, to, yeah, I agree that that is not what, what the government official was saying. Right, so for him to even to, to re-say it, even if that was truly... Number one, I, I don't buy that that's what was actually said, and it just, it's just too stupid to, to even be given uh, a second of thought. So the fact that he would even say this, to me, is just uh, you know, another mark of, of just uh, another reason why I wouldn't want him in, in a position of power. Well, good news is I don't know, he probably won't run for legislature next year. He's enjoying his career on TV. 
Yeah. Moving on now, and KMT Vice Chairman Andrew Shah began this week touting what he described as the success of his 10-day visit to China. Now, according to Shah, he held talks with a bevy of Chinese officials, and he said all the talks were carried out on the basis of mutual respect, which he stressed proves that the KMT's pursuit of peace and stability and eased tensions in the Taiwan Strait has paid off in spades. Now, speaking to reporters, Shah said that all the goals set out by the KMT for the trip were hit, and he also established communication channels with new officials at the Taiwan Affairs Office there. He went on to say that Chinese authorities reaffirmed past agreements signed between Taipei and Beijing relating to people's livelihoods on the two sides of the strait and they also agreed to reduce existing obstacles in cross-strait exchanges. Along with meeting with Chinese officials, Xia also met with Taiwanese business groups and individuals and he said that there is a general consensus there for the need to increase the number of direct cross-strait flights. So much Michael, he came back. Of course, he's going to say it was a success. Yeah, uh, of course. But the the thing that that, uh, struck me was a quote here. It says, during the trip, Shah and Chinese authorities reaffirmed past agreements signed between Taipei and Beijing related to blah, 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 blah. And I was just thinking, does he have this authority? He's not being sent there as a government representative. His his party is not in power currently. Um, why, Why would this be okay. Um, I don't think somebody from the Republican Party could fly to Cuba or wherever and reaffirm. It it just, it's strange that this is the way it is. And it sort of goes back to, I feel like an an old, the old days of where the the KMT and Taiwan were were synonymous. It's it's just strange to me. I, well, the KMT is just pursuing its its China policy, sort of. Does it have a China policy? Well, that, 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 yeah, you took the words out of my mouth, right? They, they, when they come back here, or when they engage with Americans, the messaging is not exactly identical to what they say while they're in China. And ultimately, if they want to get elected uh, president or take, retake a majority in the legislature, they're going to have to address that. And uh, this has been an ongoing problem uh, ever since Eric Drew became chairman of the party in, in, in October 2021. Uh, they, they sort of kind of want to say 92 consensus, and then they sort of kind of don't want to. And the same thing happened when Eric Drew went to Washington, D.C. in June 2022, and then uh, Andrew Xiao went to China in August 2022, shortly after Pelosi was here in Taiwan. And, and they really want to avoid saying, yeah, 92 consensus, let's go back to the Mind Joe administration era policy. But again, it sort of kind of seems what their policy is, and it sort of kind of seems to be what, what Andrew Xia was saying to Chinese officials, uh, you know, like, saying like we, we reaffirm the stuff we did when we were in government. I mean, that happens all the time. You know, the famous one kind of during the Trump administration is John Kerry uh, when he was out of government flying around the world saying my accomplishments as, as, as uh, uh, Secretary of State, the Iran nuclear agreement, let's go back to them. And, and then, of course, Republicans would say, who are you to make these statements? So, well, he didn't fly uh, to Iran. It's, it's, it's and part say of that campaigning, I think. What? He didn't fly to Iran and say that in Iran. Well, yeah, but he... he 
said it while meeting, you know, he went to forums with Iranian government officials and said it publicly. So and then people say, who are you to who are you to say that? So, look, it's, it's ultimately up to the other side. So in this case, you know, it's up to the, the DPP to say that's not a good policy for Taiwan. Voters, you should stick with us. We have a better policy on China relations to keep Taiwan safe and prosperous. Uh, uh, you know, the, the, the DPP is going to get its game going. Uh, they, they've had a leadership change at party headquarters, so it's going to take some time to, to build up their ability to respond. But I, I, would, I would expect them. That's just understandable politics, that they're going to say that this is a bad policy, and then ultimately it's up to the voters. And, of course, Michael, the KMT vice chairman, did stress when he came home here to Taipei that he didn't discuss Taiwan's 2024 rather presidential election with Chinese officials, saying that there was no need to discuss that issue with China because it was an internal affair for Taiwan. And, of course, that statement came amid pri- to his prior to his visit. People were saying, oh, I bet he's going to discuss who China wants to be the KMT nomination. <laughs> yeah, um, I think uh, even the most uh, uh, strongly anti-KMT person would probably find it difficult to uh, believe that, that that would occur. I don't buy it. I don't think that uh, uh, Taiwan and or the KMT and, and the Communist Party discuss candidates and stuff like that. That, that strikes me as conspiracy theories. But uh, Ross's things about uh, the KMT needing a, a clear China message, they're going to need to get on this really fast because um, January is when we have our presidential election and that's just coming really really soon and um whoever they run um uh, I, I would recommend they run uh, uh new type mayor ho but he's going to if he's going to be the standard bearer he's going to have to have a very clear message because otherwise he's going to be pummeled and uh i was speaking to a rather high-ranking kmt member who i can't name in kaohsiung and this person was um, quite uh, despondent, actually, just saying that uh, they've had many a meeting about this and tried to figure out, and you hear it in, in their discussions when they say things like, uh, some people say, well, we need a, a new consensus. The 92 consensus is, well, 20-something years or 30 years is just too old. We need something. And, yeah, um, there are people in the party who understand this and recognize this and know that if they just stick to the stuff that they stuck to last time, that they'll probably be defeated, and especially if they run one of their old school candidates again. The challenge there is just the, the, the party's history, its way of doing things. So, sure, I, I think it would be prudent politics to have a candidate in place as quickly as possible, but they, they just they never do that. And, and actually, the DPP is not so great about that either. If we just look at last year, how slow they were to name their candidates in some of the key uh, local leadership races. Uh, but but the, the KMT, the last couple of presidential election cycles, just been dreadful about this, right? To, 2016 election, they were changing their candidate in September 2015, and then yep. uh, uh, four years ago, they only confirmed their candidate in, in July when you know, when they finally held their primary. So they're they're only going to hurt themselves with that. But if Ho Yoi is the candidate, the, uh, you know, unfortunately for him, uh, among the, the the frequently named candidates, he's just the person with the least experience uh, and and probably the most the most iffy China policy because he never, you know, he hasn't really worked on those issues and he never talks about it. Uh, at least some of the other candidates have kind of been in the, the mix for this. Obviously, uh, Julie Wu in his earlier, Eric Ju in his earlier positions in government has dealt with this and 
know, Guo Taiming, Terry Go does business in China, so he, at least he could plausibly say he knows a little bit about China, even though he's going to be, you know, attacked for for uh, you know his business interests in China. But uh, it, it's not a surprise that Guomindang uh, officials uh, are are a bit worried about this uh, because, as I said earlier. Eventually, the DVB is going to get its messaging uh, focused on this issue and, and be able to draw a clear distinction between their policies and, and the Kuomintang policy, if the Kuomintang ever comes up with one. Ho might have an advantage, actually, in this. You, you see it as a weakness, but he could possibly just almost circumvent this by just going, I will defend the sovereignty and uh, the livelihoods and the people of the Republic of China, Taiwan, or some simple statement like that, and that's his China policy. Well, it could be good enough in a three-way race uh, with a split vote, uh, but uh, he'll he'll be attacked for that, and and that's completely reasonable to attack him on that from a DPP perspective. I, if I was advising the DPP, I'd say go after that and say that that that's lacking in substance. And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week. And the Cabinet on Thursday approved a proposal for the use of 380 billion NT in tax surplus to boost the island's economy. Under the proposal, the funds from the 2022 tax surplus will be, can be used by the government from 2023 through 2025. One of the incentives is the allocation of 141.7 billion NT for the payment of 6,000 NT in cash to all Taiwanese and some foreign nationals. Other proposed allocations include 30 billion NT to the Labour Insurance Fund, 20 billion NT to the National Health Insurance Fund and 50 billion NT to Thai Power. The Ministry of Economic Affairs will receive 31.7 billion NT to help fund its subsidies into small and medium-sized enterprises and the manufacturing sector. Just over 10 billion NT will be allocated to the Ministry of Health to be used for financial assistance to low-income and low-middle-income households, the handicapped and other disadvantaged groups, while the Ministry of Transport will receive 27.5 4 billion NT to subsidise public transport fares and to provide incentives for foreign tourists to visit the island. So, Ross, that's a hefty, hefty chunk of change, and the government hopes to do quite a lot with it. So, let's break this down. So, the 6,000 NT payment for Taiwanese citizens and some foreign nationals. This is a, a policy uh, that many governments around the world that are in the financial position to do so uh, have pursued during the last three years of the pandemic, a cash handout or some kind of voucher. And some governments have done multiple rounds of that. Uh, so no surprise that, that Taiwan is, is pursuing that as well. You know, it's, it, it, the government was in a tough position here because the, the uh, tax income, you know, the tax revenue exceeded the forecast, and then they were put in this position of, okay, what are you going to do with this money? And I think, to be fair to the government, they would have liked to have saved it, you know, as we say in American, save it for a rainy day. That, frankly, might include uh, defense spending. Uh, they, they have other priorities like housing and elder care. So eventually, uh, you know, we landed on a compromise where some of the money will be saved for a rainy day, and some will be spent on, on other very, very valid, justifiable spending priorities. 
and then uh, you know, cash hand out uh, to the public, including uh, foreigners who, who actually live here, who are not um, you know, just digital nomads or tourists passing through. Uh, Six thousand Taiwan dollars per person is not going to add a massive amount to economic growth. But uh, before an election, you do what you have to do to um, you know, spread around some money. And Michael, of course, we talked about this issue on the program several weeks ago when the government first talked about it. And you were pretty much anti giving people 6,000 NT and saying that the government should use it elsewhere. Well, I don't think that's a totally fair characteristic uh, characterization of my position. Um, but, you know, uh, the, Ross is correct when he talks about the election issue. The KMT, uh, what was it, uh, two days ago when this was being discussed, they uh, wanted to up it to 10,000, right? And uh, that was defeated, so it's going to be 6,000. And yes, uh, giving people money is, um, it will probably result in some, some small um, contribution to GDP or whatever, but there are, uh, let's just think about like uh, real wages, for example, um, or disadvantaged people, or there, there are just certain projects that I would like to focus on. However, I have reservations because we don't have the most perfect record for uh, not having corruption issues or, you know, pork barrel spending and all of this. So um, I guess I've, I've moderated to my, my, my thinking to, to I worry more that if we did just sort of hand out large chunks of money for for kind of ill-defined uh, causes, uh, help people, that uh, maybe it would end up just being wasted. So maybe direct handouts are a way to go, but in general, I would I would rather if it was if, say I, people like like uh, the three of us who are talking we don't desperately need 6000 NT uh and you know I'm I'm going to be happy to take it if it comes but if it if I knew and I could be sure that it would be used for something much more uh, valid or useful I would be very happy to to accept that and Ross, what about some other allocations for this money? I mean, 50 billion NT to Thai power. I mean, couldn't the government simply raise electricity rates? Well, that's a long-running problem. It's, it's, a, it's a business problem for, for Thai power because they lose money, uh, but uh, it's a political problem. Um, and uh, the politicians don't really want to raise rates to, to a level that would cover Thai Power's costs. So, uh, unfortunately, that's not going to change, and the company will continue to be uh, subsidized or need to be subsidized. Uh, and uh, I wouldn't expect any politician uh, from I, uh, any of the political parties, maybe Guo Taiming, Tari Go, because uh, you know, he, if he becomes president, he, he would raise the rates after he's elected, uh, because he certainly wouldn't tolerate that kind of loss at, uh, within his business empire. Uh, but uh, this is a great way to solve that problem in part uh, to, to hand Thai Power a big subsidy, to so, you, so you have less uh, private. There's less red ink, less money losses there, and uh, the government just locked out because of this huge tax surplus and they could give some of it to Thai power. But uh, no, don't expect any politician to, to uh, advocate raising rates to, to a more realistic level. So, Ross, how would you feel about, instead of giving people 6,000 NT, putting a whole bunch more of that money into Thai power? Uh, the, I think it needs to be part of a more comprehensive plan. Um, well, changes to the grid, uh, the uh, up, up, 
upgrading its systems, and they're doing a little bit of that. But it's like so much that government does here, these things take not just years, it seems to be decades. It's it's almost like talking about the military, how long it's taken to improve some of the things that it does. So if you gave $2 billion U.S. dollars to tie powers from this tax surplus, I, I wouldn't expect it to address nearly all of Thai Power's ongoing problems. And so, uh, yeah, you could give more to Thai Power. I just think uh, you know, we, we should keep in mind that a state-run company, very bureaucratic, with endemic problems, uh, even a little bit more money is probably not enough to... It certainly wouldn't address where they need to be as far as charging a rate to actually cover uh, its cost. And Michael, what about the Ministry of Transport allocation of funds? And they're going to use this to subsidise public transport fares and introduce monthly public transport parties, but serving specific areas. So there's one being introduced for Taipei, New Taipei, Taoyuan and Geelong. While, of course, in your neck of the woods, there's one for basically Tainan, Kaohsiung and Pingdong. Yeah, <clears throat> sorry, this is, uh, it's great. Um, Kaohsiung's one is only going to be 400 399 for being inside of the boundaries of uh, Kaohsiung City itself. But if you want to travel between Tainan, Kaohsiung, and Pingdong, it's going to be 1000 or 999 And this, for the south, uh, is, is really necessary. They're not going to make any money off of this. The, the subway is going to continue losing money for quite some time, I would, I would guess. Uh, it's just not used in the same way as in the north. But we're starting to see people who perhaps will live or perhaps will work in Nanzi or some of these other areas. We have sections of Kaohsiung a little further up, and they are somewhat accessible by the, the, the two lines that we have. But they're a little ways away. But what if I could um, live out there and my rent was 35% cheaper and I only had to add a, a 400 NT monthly uh, fee? So this could be very useful. Or even uh, a trip to Pingdong by train is, is generally about half an hour. So perhaps people will, will, will start to consider uh, different types of commuting. And... Uh, young people, uh, schools, all that kind of uh, students. We we need to start uh, beginning a culture in the south of public transport. And because uh, scooters and the fact that it doesn't rain here very often is just really difficult to get this going. Uh, you you rarely see people make this decision except when they absolutely have to. So. Um, by doing this, I'm hoping that it would work. And I think the same could be said for the North. If I was uh, working in Taipei and I knew that I could live in uh, Taoyuan or uh, Geelong or something for much cheaper and get into uh, the main city, I, I, yeah, so I think it's good, very good. And, of course, Ross, looking at the Ministry of Transport's other funding allocations, this that it plans to use to issue vouchers to, for foreign tourists to help the tourism sector recover from the pandemic, with the government saying it hopes the funding would help attract 6 million foreign tourists to Taiwan this year. Now, under that plan, of course, Ross, individual travellers will receive a 5,000 NT voucher and travellers in groups could qualify for subsidies worth between 10 and 20,000 NT per group. Well, you know what I like to say about uh, the Tourism Bureau. Uh, many foreigners who've lived in Taiwan a long time, as, as the three of us have often view it, as one of the long-term underperformers in, in the Taiwan government across multiple administrations. So we'll just let it throw around some more money. Uh, you know, big subsidies have been part of its uh, 
way of doing things over the, uh, the period preceding the pandemic when uh, China uh, travel travelers, inbound travelers were reduced significantly um, and uh, subsidies were given for tourists from Southeast Asia. And uh, it does bring in a little bit people, more people, but then we always get into this debate about is it backpackers as opposed to tourists who spend, say, 200 U.S. dollars a day, or, or uh, which I think was, was about the estimate for travelers from China. Um, but, uh, hey, there's an election coming, so we'll have transportation subsidies. We'll try and bring in more tourists and subsidize their spending so they could spread around some more money. Uh, we, we also have the high-speed rail extensions. Uh, you know, it's part of uh, spreading around some more money pre-election. So not a surprise. Uh, the, the challenge on the tourism side, though, is Taiwan is competing with a lot of other great destinations where people have uh, pent-up desire to visit um, in this part of the world, Japan, Korea, uh, and Southeast Asia. Uh, so whether this this will you know, this subsidy will, will address that remains to be seen. And then uh, I, I wish the authorities would be more transparent when they cite these numbers and, and, and clearly say, well, what is what is the number of tourists visiting and not and not including those numbers, uh, uh, foreign workers entering Taiwan to, to begin contracts working here. And Ross, I mean, the KMT this week called for Taiwan to open up for Chinese tourists. That's a political decision. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, not just the Kuomintang that wants this. The tourism sector wants it. Uh, the government doesn't. They have some valid reasons not to. They're still citing uh, the lack of transparent information about pandemic conditions in China. Uh, the other side of that argument would be other countries have generally reopened to Chinese tourists, including, again, countries in this region. Um, and, and there was that period about six weeks ago, two months ago, when China suddenly ended its zero COVID policies and some countries imposed uh, negative COVID test requirements on, on inbound travelers from China. China retaliated in, in some cases, uh, you know, cutting off the issuing of visas to nationals from those countries. Uh, but a lot of countries now are, are rapidly removing that, that requirement on, on inbound Chinese travelers as well. Uh, I, I don't expect the government here to, to rapidly uh, uh, embrace inbound Chinese tourists. Again, they're, they're more focused on Southeast Asian and Indian tourists, Japan, of course, and Korea. Uh, and they're the, the other side as well. You know, I, I don't think the Chinese government is, is eager to see large numbers of Chinese tourists come to Taiwan. And the Chinese government has has enormous authority over this, so they could they could use the policy tools they've used before, which is to stop individual travelers. Uh, you know, they could just impose a ban, uh, or they can impose a ban on group tours, or they could tell travel agencies not to sell group tours to Taiwan. So I think politics is going to take precedence on that one. So I would not expect to see large numbers of Chinese tourists coming here. And before, oh, carry on, Michael. Kaohsiung just uh, opened up or said they were going to open up the new cruise terminal to people from Hong Kong and Macau. So, of course, those are not uh, necessarily you know, Chinese uh, citizens in the same way as the mainlanders are, but there will be plenty of people in Hong Kong, I'm assuming, who would be on that ship that would have Chinese passports. So there is some, some progress being made. And those are the kind of people who probably this 5,000 NT on a card, if they're only here for a short time and they, they, they'll, they'll spend it quickly, 
certainly in, it might be useful for those type of people. But overall, um, I very much doubt that you would get uh, someone from Europe or the U.S. who would make a decision to come to Taiwan based on the fact that they're going to get, you know, less than $200 uh, on, a, on a card. And before we go this week, an unmanned vehicle being touted as Taiwan's first food courier robot will be undergoing a 10-month trial at the Kaohsiung Software Park beginning on March the 1st. Now, according to the Industrial Technology Research Institute, the autonomous mobile robot is named Cubot One, and it differs from simple serving and wait staff robots which have been seen in restaurants, of course, since the coronavirus pandemic started due to its ability to deliver food to office workers. Now, apparently, this Cubot can move through crowded spaces, enter and exit elevators and deliver food from the Kaohsiung Park's 7-Eleven convenience store chain, Michael. Yeah, um, I have actually seen several videos of this thing in action and um, it's quite cute. Um, it's slow. Very, very slow. And when it gets into the elevator, I haven't been able to ascertain how it is able to uh, uh, select the floor that it's supposed to go to. So uh, I think it still needs some form of human help. It is a good idea. And where they are practicing it at the Kaohsiung Software Park is a good place because there's only three buildings there. And it's right downtown near the uh, convention center. It's a, not you know out in the middle of nowhere. These, it, it, it just, it's a good place, small. And um, we hopefully this will lead to Taiwan becoming perhaps not the dominant player, but a, a bigger player in robotics. Uh, this, if, if they've got those, you know, the lidar and the lasers in front of it, and yes, if you stand in front of it, it, it stops and it moves. So we are making progress. Uh, it's cute, but um, uh, hopefully we, we take this and we, we run a lot further with it. So, I mean, Ross, do you think this, this Q-Bot will be threatening the jobs of Uber, Uber Eats and Food Panda drivers? Uh, it depends. Uh, it definitely, especially in southern Taiwan, will need not just good Mandarin, but good Taiwanese uh, language ability as well. So it'll be interesting to see how, how they handle that. Uh, but uh, more seriously, uh, Taiwan, we, we, I mean, we know it goes without saying about Taiwan's extraordinary capabilities with with hardware, um, and, and I mentioned this because Michael said, you know, that hopefully this will uh, show more for or bring more achievements for the robotics industry here in Taiwan. But this is not something new. Right? There are other places around the world that have similar things. I mean, just go to a Heidi Lao hot pot restaurant in Taiwan, and there, there's a robot delivering food. So you know, the concept is not is not new. And you kind of say, gosh, Taiwan has all this extraordinary ability. Why, why, why is this even like a big deal in 2023? Well, you know, it should have been you know, something that, that Taiwan is capable of a few years ago. Uh, so wish wish them well. Uh, but I, I would soberly look at it as uh, yeah. you know, something that, that competitors are doing as well. Yeah, I have to agree that I was slightly underwhelmed by the the robot. It it's just too slow at, at present. Uh, it does navigate, but not not wonderfully. And then I thought to myself, if I was working at a software park and sitting in some seat for you know ten, eleven hours a day, it would be good for me to get up and go downstairs and buy a coffee and walk around a little bit. So I don't even know if this is going to be really what people need. But yeah, uh, we we need to step it up. But it could be rather amusing if it was programmed to say rude things when it got into elevators. Yeah, just put chat GPT on it and you're good to go. Yeah, basically. Uh, yeah. I'd like yeah. to know if it's eligible for the subsidized, you know, regional southern Taiwan train ticket. 
We'll have to look into that for you, Ross, mate. <laughs> anyway, thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast apps. And, of course, I've been joined on today's show in Taipei by Ross Feingold. Have a great weekend. And in Kaohsiung by Michael Smith. Thanks for having me. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.